everybody. This is Phil Town. This is Danielle Town. And we are here for the Invested Podcast, where we discuss, we learn, we study how to be <laughs> a great investor in 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 the tradition of the what we're called the Rule One family, which is a whole bunch of investors who believe very strongly in what Ben Graham and Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger have been teaching forever. For 85 years. Mm. Well, Ben's been teaching it for 85 years. He's gone, obviously gone. Former professor at Columbia University, who is the mentor of Warren Buffett. <laughs> this is not a good intro. All right, Dad, but you're stuck who with is, it. Who is Warren Buffett's men- who is Warren Buffett mentoring? Give us the family. Give us the tradition of masters. The tradition of masters in the Rule One family is Ben Graham from Columbia University, who taught Warren Buffett who taught tons of other people, and Charlie Munger, who joined with Warren Buffett in the late 1950s, early 1960s, and together helped create this style of investing. There we go. Rule number one, baby. Rule number one. Which Dad, is, what's rule number one? Which is don't lose money. What's rule number two? Don't forget rule number one. Oh. <laughs> I tell you, I swear... I, I know how everybody's hearing this. Everybody's hearing this is saying, yeah, buy low, sell high. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. Uh, big... Don't lose your money. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's a really sage advice. <laughs> Thanks a lot. But I think this is pretty important to talk about right now because last week we were discussing how sketchy the markets become according to our view of the market. Yeah, and I got I would super say, depressed about it. You it did. It was not an enjoyable ending to our podcast. No. You were basically, about <laughs> you were like, yeah, if you're invested in the market, that might be rough. Yeah, it could be rough. And we we pretty much had nothing else to say after that. And then we stopped. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, we stopped. <laughs> but you said that you wanted to talk about it this week and hopefully... Give some ideas to lift us up out of our depression. The thing is, it's weird that we're depressed because the market's going up and people are making money. Yeah, they so are. So why are we depressed? Well, I'm not depressed. Actually, I'm really excited that I th- the market's probably going to go through some pretty major change here um, with the caveat that the federal government is now so involved in the markets um, as a result of the near depression we fell in, almost fell into in 2008, that it's very difficult to know how aggressive they're going to move to protect the stock market from going down. Yeah, no. I mean, that's you hit the nail on the head. That's the scary bit. That's the scary bit. And so if, um, for example, it's difficult to bet against this market, like I don't know if you'd really want to short this market because they have the support of the biggest printing press on the planet and can really pump money into this thing every time it starts to wobble, which is kind of what they've been doing. And, and you know, more power to them. They, they've probably saved a lot of people's jobs, a lot of people's financial livelihoods. So I'm, you know, I'm cheering them on to make the right decisions here. But some extremely good investors, including Warren Buffett, including Charlie Munger, including Ray Dalio at, at Bridgewater, um, and many more, Jeremy Grantham, there's many, many more uh, really good investors who are very sketchy about where this market can go, if only because the markets have pretty consistently for 150 years 
moved through recessions, economic rainstorms, as Buffett calls them. Yeah, economic it's an ebb weather. and a flow. It's always an ebb and a flow. Always. The market, as you've told me many times, the market is never going to always go up. It's right. at some point going to correct. Right. And the part that got me depressed are all the indications that you've told me about that were in this crazy, overheated, irrationally exuberant market right now. Well, let's let's review a couple of the pieces of this that um, I think are worthwhile. The first is that there's a relationship between the total value of the market, all the prices of all the stocks, um, called the market capitalization, and the GDP of the country, right? Because so you're saying the market capitalization of the entire U.S. stock market, pretty much. And the 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 index that tracks that is called the Wilshire 5000, and that's 5,000 stocks that are public, and that really gets you down into the small companies and um, and so what the Wilshire does is uh, basically take the price of all of the companies in the 5,000 companies and multiply it times all of the shares of all of those companies, right? And you end up with this thing, you know, $20 trillion or something. Okay. And, and then what happens is that the Federal Reserve uh, Regional Bank of St. Louis, which is for some reason, I, I don't even know what it is. It's called the FRED. <laughs> Federal Reserve, <laughs> okay, FR, I got the Federal Reserve part, E-D. How does that get to be St. Louis? I don't know. So it's the Fred is the St. Louis Fed. It's and, specifically the St. Louis Fed, not yep. the Boston Fed or the New York Fed no. or the San Francisco Fed. No, it's the St. Louis Fed. And they track a bunch of stuff on statistics All and right. they publish it on their website. And the website okay. is www.fred okay so in fact let me look it up real quick so i get Fred it exactly dot, right fred.gov i i don't know i'm just gonna check here real quick while we're yakking uh, on the website <laughs> is um let's see what can i do okay on the website is this uh chart that you need to take a look at and and kind of follow along um with and that chart is called the wilshire GDP, Wilshire GDP ratio. So it's comparing. Okay, well, I'm not going to follow along with it right now because I imagine that most people listening to it to this are not going to be pulling right. it up on their computer. But, let me at least, but you uh, can we'll, tell we'll, us what it looks like, and, and we'll then put, we can look it up later. Yeah, and we'll, <laughs> I know I'm not supposed to say all this all because nobody can figure it out. It's the Fred.StLouisFed.org. Okay. Okay. And yeah. you can just Fred. Google. Fred.stlouisfed. Yeah. <laughs> .org. Also, I bet if you just Google Wilshire 5000 to GDP, I bet it comes up. It it, it 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 helps to put in Fred. Okay. In the Google. Fred GDP Wilshire, and it'll come right up. And so what they're doing is they're, they're tracking this. And in 2001, following the collapse of the market, had the stock market dropped about 50% in 2001 and 2002. And Warren Buffett was was being interviewed in uh, in the uh, Fortune magazine, and he said, "When the when the Wilshire, the total value of the Wilshire is seventy to eighty percent of GDP. Mm -hmm. So GDP is bigger than the Wilshire, 
index, then it's a pretty decent time to buy stocks. And all through the 70s, to put this in perspective, all through the 70s, when Buffett was making billions of dollars, the Wilshire was 20 to 30% of the GDP. Wow, really? Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. that that for, small? For almost 20 years. Wow. Okay. So you know, everybody knew you couldn't make money in the stock market. Right? Well, that's what I was just thinking. Do you think that that's a function of limited access to public markets? I mean, well, the 70s were, then, were... you know. What's that? Yeah, back then, well, first, there wasn't a lot of retirement money in there yet. Right. Like, right. there weren't pension plans. Well, I, I actually don't know about the 70s. I sort of am imagining, like, back in the day, you know, but like, there weren't, there weren't pension plans as much. There weren't individual investors in the stock market as much unless you had a really large amount of money. And then you had your own broker and your own bank doing it for you. And you were one of those people who kind of had people doing that. But it wasn't like us today sitting at home doing investing online. There was right. no online. And there was no there was no uh, 401ks. There were no IRAs. There were no pre-tax retirement accounts. So all of that yeah. has changed radically. And as a result, a lot more money is in the market. So there's a lot more activity in the market today. And that probably has an influence on this thing. But it, today's market isn't that dissimilar from 2000, 2001, when Buffett no, was talking. No, no. And that's when he but, said- but, but I find that very interesting to, to just note that the 20 to 30% seems so dramatic, but it probably wasn't actually as dramatic as it sounds in terms of real number differences from like a 70 to 80% as Buffett said in the 70s. Yeah, I don't or, know. Or sorry, in the in early 2000s. I don't know. I, I, I think that there's a big difference between the percentage relationship between the price of the market and the GDP and like the total dollars in the market, which was massively lower, of course. Yeah. Um, well, interesting. Yeah. There would be a relationship. So Yeah, because yeah. total dollars in the market generally... The yeah. more there is, the more prices go up. That's how you yeah. buy things. Yeah, well said. Okay, well said. That's actually really important. You're pretty smart sometimes, really. Sometimes. I mean, all the time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so here this thing, as, as retirement money flows in, then the Wilshire gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger because right, people are driving up the prices. And, um, and then Buffett says, okay, when it's about 70, 80%, then it's a pretty okay time to buy stocks. And then he said, when it gets to 100%, here's the quote, you're playing with fire. Okay. Today, it's at 140%. So so wait, he said, at what level you're playing with fire? 100%. Oh, 100% you're playing with fire. Yeah. As in the market could drop at any moment kind yeah. of thing. And, sh and should get repriced downward. And now we're at 140%. Yes. <laughs> I don't even... I have a hard time wrapping my mind around that. I know. I mean, how did it get so insane? It got okay, there. question. And I don't know if you know yeah. the answer to this. Yeah. What percentage was it at right before like the 2001 bubble? Like right before he he probably gave this interview. At 110. Wow. Percent. And right before the 2008 crash. It was at 101. Hmm. Okay. So there's clearly a relationship going on here between GDP and, and the, the price in the market. Um, 
And right now we're at 140%. So you're wondering like, how the heck did that happen? And how it happened was um, that other choices for putting your money into something that's going to give you a yield, it's going to give you cash flow, have basically disappeared. I mean, hmm. right? 2008 crushed real estate. And then bonds were sent down to zero. And so where do you put money? You buy gold. It doesn't give you any yield, right? And so people pushed more and more and more of their money into the stock market. And so, and yeah. and, and meanwhile, there's this artificial kind of financial engineering that seems to make the market look relatively cheap. I mean, not super cheap. It's like at an 18 PE or 17 PE that doesn't look too horrible on a historical basis. But that does not account for the fact that com companies are borrowing money like crazy, acquiring other companies. Mergers and acquisitions are just screamingly hot. And they're buying back their stock with borrowed money and with their, their, their free cash flow to drive the stock upward, right, which supports executive bonuses and executive options. And all of this artificial financial engineering, I mean, look what IBM has done. You know, it's just continuing buying back its stock. <clears throat> and it's just holding its stock price even. So this market is juiced in so many different ways from cheap interest rates to no other choices for people to slap their retirement money into to executives trying to, to get themselves a bonus. All of this juicing the market. So when you look at the market PE, you see these companies. Now, hey, man, they're driving their earnings up. They're not driving their earnings up. They're getting rid of their stock shares. Hmm. In other words, their earnings aren't growing that much. What's, what's growing is their earnings per share because they're getting yeah. rid of stock shares by buying back stock. So and each it, one appears to be larger than it used to be. Exactly. It's sort of artificial. And so I think we need to take note of, first off, it, you know, 15 years ago, Buffett saying this is a crisis level at 100. What mm -hmm. does that mean at 140? And second, that as we talked about earlier, Buffett now has more money stacked up, more cash stacked up in Berkshire Hathaway by double than he's ever had before, cash. And that goes along with his latest statement that, hey, every 10 years or so, there's an economic storm. And when that happens, you come outside when it's raining gold and you hold out a bucket. So he's got his $85 billion, $90 billion bucket is what he's yeah, got. Yeah. I mean, I think that to me actually is sort of perversely comforting to know that this is a regular resetting. It's not a crisis. It's actually not a crisis when the market drops. Right. And it's people, not a crisis. People seem to think that it is because <laughs> they're bought at high prices. And so for them, it is. But right. for those of us who are trying to figure this stuff out, if we're ready, as Buffett wrote in his most recent shareholder letter, um, which you guys should all check out. And by the way, listen to our, what did we do? Like three episodes on that thing? I know. He said, um, he said, be ready. Like go outside when it starts to rain, go outside with a wash bucket, not with a spoon or, you know, something to that right. effect. Right. And, um, and so and that, that actually, it's true. Right. Yeah. Well, that wash, wash bucket, bucket is having cash. 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 You get out there with cash. And so the, the biggest thing. But that takes away thing, some of the fear, right? To know like, all right, this is just expected. This is just, it's going to happen. It's not like we're sitting here hoping it doesn't. We're actually sitting here going, yeah, it's just the timing, you know, we'll right. see. 
Well, so let's let's talk about that in terms of Talib, uh, Talib's sort of anti-fragile view, right? And and when you look at it the way Buffett's doing it, he's anti-fragile, meaning he benefits greatly from the storm that's knocking over all the trees because he has this wash bucket of $90 billion to go out and benefit from when prices come down. Now, the alternate to that is what almost all financial advisors are telling their clients right now, which is this is a common occurrence. The market is going to fluctuate up and down. You just stay in it. That's not anti-fragile. That's weathering the storm, which is very different in Taleb's view. So you don't get any economic benefit from weathering the storm. You just understand that in five or eight years or 10 years, you'll be okay. The money will be back. Well, how about for people who are invested in, let's say, a broad market index right now? Yep. I mean, they should should just stay in it, right? Well, I've had this conversation with people like like the editor of Kiplinger and all that on CNBC. And, and, you know, let me just be clear before you say anything. This is your opinion. This is only (laughs) for education. Um, Don't listen to him, guys. Make your own decisions. This is entertainment only. Phil Town doesn't know what he's talking about. All right, Dad, go right ahead. All right, thank you. Give us your opinion. Thank you very much for that support. And so what I'm going to say is my opinion. And my opinion is that there, there is a strong reason why even Warren Buffett and even Charlie Munger say you should just ride it out. All right, so these guys are going to tell you the average quote investor, I'm putting quote mark, you see my little fingers going quote around <laughs> the word investor. because Your fingers are indeed making air quotes. Yes, those are air quotes. Because let me, let me tell you, these guys don't really think you're an investor, okay? An investor is someone who knows what they're buying, they understand it, and they know what it's worth as a business, and then they buy it. So you guys, when you're when you're just spreading your money around 10 indexes and and hoping the thing goes up in the long run because it always has gone up in the long run, you're not investing, you're speculating. Let's be honest about it. You're making it sound so negative, but it's not a negative thing, in my opinion, to buy the market index, to stick with it, and ride out the changes. And in fact, no less than Warren Buffett says, if you're not going to spend the time on learning to invest... That's exactly what you should do. Buy something that has super low fees so that you're not just giving away your money. And then essentially you're betting on the U.S. to do better over time. Right. And, there's and hopefully no you don't have to take your money out at any particular given year because you don't want to do it during a downturn. Right. And I, there's no real reason to be using an advisor. I mean, you don't need to pay somebody 1% of your money um, to, to do this. Um Unless you're getting advice on, you know, maybe how you should be financially planning, you know, tax planning, you know, how do you do the best job for getting your kids money? That's different. I mean, your basic advisor is just going to do what a robo advisor is going to do or what, you know, Betterment or Wealthfront. You know, they charge you 15 basis points to do the same thing, which is just diversify the, the portfolio across a lot of stuff. And then, you know, that's it. Rebalance it every year according to modern portfolio theory. That's what everybody does. So why pay a lot of money for somebody to do that for you if you can do that yourself online? It's simple. And that's probably what more and more people, right now there's about $100 billion that's being managed like that now. It's not kind of a drop in the bucket of the total amount of capital out there that's being managed, but it's still getting bigger every year. 
And for anybody that has a small amount of capital, and I would, and you're not going to learn to invest, you don't have time or you don't have the inclination, then I would recommend you go Google, you know, Wealthfront, uh, Robo Advisor, Betterment. Go take a look. And those guys uh, are they're aiming right at you. They want your they want your business, and they're a pretty decent solution if you're okay with being long term. And then then it's going to work out for you. More power to you. I agree with Warren Buffett on that. But I would just add a caveat to that, that because you just said to go look up robo advisors, I think they're fine when they're generally tracking the market. And some of their options do that. And then other ones only choose certain companies. And in those cases, you're not tracking the market anymore. You might do better, you might do worse. And if you don't know much about those companies, that's, uh, you, you just don't know. You don't know about the companies, you don't know. Yeah, don't do that. I mean, the whole point that Buffett's making is, you know, you don't know, so right. invest accordingly. Or so quote, he's saying speculate invest accordingly. In, like the whole point of it of sort of taking a large index, the way he says to do it, is one super low fees. Two, you're not betting on any particular companies. You're betting on the market as a whole. Yeah, you're betting on America. You're betting on oh, you're Canada. betting on America. You're yeah. betting on the first world economic system that's going to prevail, and that's a good bet. And 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 that's what you should do. But um, you know what, Dad? I bet a lot of people who listen to our podcast and are coming to Rule One Investing are 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 probably finding themselves in sort of a hybrid situation of maybe in the past they've done these things that financial advisors have recommended, like buying indexes, buying mutual funds buying you know i don't know whatever all those financial products are and now they're thinking like okay i want to transition into more doing it myself and that's why they're listening to you and they're looking at this market going up and their money's tied up in it what do you do you know that's yeah, a, I, that's a tough I, one well i think the first thing is to realize that anybody that's just in a broad market it and doesn't look at the values of companies, doesn't understand and is not going to learn how to invest the way we're talking about, they don't really have a choice because you're not going to be able probably to successfully time the market. And um, and that means that you're, the decision yeah, I mean, to get that's, out that's of the, the market. Right. Yeah. I mean, Tiny. if you try, you're, you're here, you're listening to us talk about like it's 140% of Wilshire GDP. We've talked in the past about the Schiller PE, the cyclically adjusted PE ratio that Robert Schiller, uh, in part, got the Nobel Prize for in 2013, is off the chart high right now. It's at 29, and there's only been there twice before, and once was 1929, and the other time was in the year 2000. So we have a couple of huge fundamental indicators that are based on price and value that are screamingly red flagged, and if you were to think, well, okay, well, I'm going to get out of the market right now, then as sure as I'm sitting here for the next three years, this market will go straight up. Definitely. Right? <laughs> it's like the worst. <laughs> it's just the way and it And it will work. be entirely because of you, imaginary person <laughs> who took their money out. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So timing the market, if you don't know anything about this stuff, is just not good. And that's why so many people argue appropriately that you really shouldn't try to do that you you're you're in an investment strategy that says just keep buying in dollar cost average keep putting the money in over your lifetime of of working and it's going to come out really good and they're right 
That's John Bogle at Vanguard. That's Warren Buffett. That's Charlie Munger. That's everybody. That's all your financial advisors. They are all correct. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the need to do better than that. Because right. you're, you're going to be okay after a lifetime of work if you put in enough. If you have no family emergencies that take away your retirement funds. If you have enough money in your income to handle your kid's college education. If you, all of the ifs, uh, if you're willing to just bang away at this job, if you're lucky enough to have a job that lasts in an age of increasing robotics, increasing uh, uh, of sending jobs overseas. So all of these things are kind of scary about the long-term potential to have a great career that's going to pay enough to get you to this retirement number. And oh, dear God, let's not even look at what the retirement number actually has to be. Because when you get to that, Danielle, things get really dicey. Yeah, because about it. I, I try mean, to ignore that as much as possible. I mean, think about this, what a person has to have. It, it, you know, every 20 years, what you have to have will likely double if historic inflation holds, which is around 3%. Every 20 years or so, 20 to 24 years, the cost of living will double. That means if you are just trying to have a retirement of a $50,000 a year income, that's $100,000 a year in 20 years. And in 40 years, if you're in your 20s right now, in 40 years, it's $200,000 a year. $200,000 a year. That means if you're making about 5%, you need, oh, let's see, what would $200,000 a year be 5% of? Like four million, yeah, ballpark. I, I'll, I'll give it to you. I don't know. All right. So now the average retiree, just the guy working at the post office, just of course he's got the government that's going to pay for it. But the average person just working in town that you see every day when you go down to do retail purchases needs four million dollars in their retirement account by the time they're sixty-five. Four million. Yeah, it's it's okay. crazy. You need you nope. need two and a half million if you're if you're forty five years old right now. You need two to two and a half million to have any kind of decent retirement, and nobody has that. Nobody can get that with the market going nowhere or five percent. Or if the market does its historical average, right? In other words, the stock market has had a historical average of about five percent for the last hundred and twenty years. Since 1960s, it did like 11%, but that we may be way off of that average now. It's coming okay, back so to for the people, Okay, so for the people who are like, I get it, Phil. You're awesome. Everything you say is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I want to do world number one investing, et cetera, blah, 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 blah. But I have all my money tied up in X fund today. Yeah. I mean, how do you transition to managing your own money? Okay, well, if you say, look, I, I've really studied this and I'm really learning to pick companies and I'm building a watch list with 10 companies on it that I can buy all of the ifs and the caveats. What um, you could do right now is a couple of different things. Number one, you could say, well, I'm just going to start getting the wash tub ready. I'm going to start. Yeah, I mean, right? Like that's what, that's that's the idea, I think. You got to follow what Buffett says and get the washtub ready. Yeah, or if you're going to be an investor and you if you're going to have a clue about what to put it in. If you're not, you know, then that's a whole you can't really think that way. But if you're really learning this stuff, 
then you start to get the wash tub out. And the wash tub out means you start going to cash, right? So right now we're starting to see more and more people do what Buffett's doing, which is holding cash, holding cash, holding cash. Now, of course, Buffett's still buying companies that he really likes. He just went in and bought a bunch of airlines, but he's still racking up the cash in a historical way. Um, And that's really different advice. It's not advice. It's just different strategy than what the major market financial advisors are going to tell you to do. Because here's the downside. The market goes up another 20%. You miss all of that. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's a sort of mental, sort of an imaginary psychological downside, I guess. Yeah. And it's an imaginary psychological downside because... We've done, uh, you know, just the numbers on how you would have done if you were all the way in cash with us in 2009 and you bought 10 great companies, you know, those companies went up double and double again and double again. Some of them doubled three times in like six years. And if you did that and you had been in cash for five years while the market was going up ahead of you. You still would have had something like a 25% per year compounded rate of return at the end of 10. Wow. Yeah. Jeez. It's a, this is really a powerful thing to think about. You, so that's you the at, don't lose money credo. That is. And it, so it basically says you're not losing money when you're sitting in cash if you are executing an intelligent strategy. So that's what Buffett's doing. He's executing an intelligence strategy with $85 billion in cash, and he can sit in cash on a ton of that money for years. And when the, it rains gold, the wash tub's out there, and over the next group of years, the next five years, those companies are so likely to explode upward, having been vastly underpriced, that you make up an enormous return. So, you know, the size of Buffett's money, maybe his return over the next, you know, 10 year average would be like 15%. For you and me, it might be 25 or 30, depending on what we do. And of course, these returns are imaginarily massive and don't chase the SEC onto me because they they hate even having anybody mention that it, you might actually do that well because so few people will. And that's, yeah. you really I mean, need the, to, the to take that seriously. Might. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Very true. So that's one thing that you might consider is starting to move cash to the wash tubs. Um, another possibility, I haven't ever talked to you about this kind of stuff, but some people do do this, is they do a collar on the market, which a is what? a, yeah, it's a it's an options trade called a collar. Oh, no, options are a whole other thing. I just needed to mention it so people will know there is that possibility. And that is you set some upside that you'd be okay with. You know, maybe the market's up 5% or 10%. But you sell somebody, I mean, basically you you have your broad market index, right? You own the whole market and you okay. sell somebody the right to, to buy your index from you at this higher price. So they pay you for that, right? For, uh-huh. Say for one year, they might pay you 70 bucks for that on the S&P 500. And then you buy an insurance policy that says if the S&P 500 goes below this point, I get to sell it to somebody at this point, even if it goes down by half. And that we're not going to get into that, but it's a it's a, a useful insurance tool that um, doesn't cost you anything because you've paid for that insurance policy 
by selling somebody the right to take you out at this little bit higher price. So you're giving away your super upside if the market just charges in into the sky blue yonder somehow and just goes skyrocketing off. You've given that up. Somebody else gets that. But in 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 exchange for that, you have a lock on how uh, on your return. You you can't go down below let's say 2175 on the SPX or something. And you're locked in. You're just good. You And that insurance policy could last for a year. You can do it for a month and just keep extending it month by month, or you can do it for a year and, and you're locked in. Now, that's not that different from going to cash, except that you get that little extra bump if the market goes up. Hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I avoid talking about, that's interesting. I avoid talking about options because it's, I know a very complicated world and I don't want to distract myself from focusing on the companies that we're choosing, the real investments, the real deployment of capital into companies that I feel like an owner of, all the stuff that we talk about with rule number one investing and options to me just seem a bit more like a a bit of a financial play. And I'm not saying that they're not useful. Like I, I know that you use them in a number of ways to just um, help you buy companies that you would have bought otherwise. But I'm financially illiterate enough to want to avoid that subject for a little while longer. And so do I. But I'm gonna. I think what you just said is appropriate for a little while longer. At some point, we're gonna get to that. Yeah, and the reason I, I think is, so. Is, well, the reason I think is important to know. That or that we will is it's important to know that Warren Buffett is probably the largest options investor in America. Probably, oh. I mean, he does the kinds of options trades that I do. Not surprisingly, because that's yeah. <laughs> the master, and those trades are designed to be extremely high probability of success, extremely low probability of failure. And the ability to cover the downside is built into the structure of the trade. So we're not going to get into that. But suffice it to say that a caller is an example of something you can do to create a, a bottom under the uh, create a floor under how much the market can go down for your account. Is that so a market, collar like a shirt collar? Yeah, like yeah, exactly. Like a yeah. Like, like it a like collar. it's it's enclosing you. Enclosing. Yeah. Right, right, right. Okay. Yeah. And so anyway, we won't get into all that except to say we've asked the question, what do I do? You know, <laughs> yeah. if this is so that's one thing that a, a really uh educated investor might do is to set up a collar on the market right now. Yes. Uh, provides a little upside and shuts down the downside completely. I'm glad you, you mentioned it, it, and I'm glad that you noted that a very educated investor would do something like that. And yeah. Yep. I am not one of those yet. So those are the two things, I mean, that I can think of um, that I'm willing to talk about. There's some other stuff that gets more complex um, that you could also do, which we won't go into. But if you're just an, if you're just learning to do this and you want to have a wash tub, you got to get one. And the only way to get one is to get the cash. All right. There you go. I think that's good. There you go. So, you know what? Um, I want to explain a little bit about why this market can do the kinds of things it can do. And I, I want to talk a little bit next time about um, somebody I think we've mentioned here, but may not have gone into much at all, it is an incredibly influential psychologist named Danny Kahneman, who got the Nobel Prize in 2010. 
and wrote a book called Thinking Fast or Slow that I read years ago. He wrote the book in, I think, 2011. Thinking Fast or Slow. And it's a deep, it's heavy. Uh, you know, I basically put it where I'm going to read it consistently over a year or something, right? I just kind of dig mm. into it slowly. Mm -hmm. But recently, um, a book came out by Michael Lewis, who wrote Blindside ah. and Liar's Poker and so many great books. A book came out that he did called The Undoing Project. And I loved it. It's really, really good. And I think we should put it on our homework pile. But and what do you want to talk about with that? And I want to talk books? about what Kahneman did that blows. I mean, he basic his work that he got the Nobel Prize for and Robert Schiller's work that he got the Nobel Prize for in 2013 are two massive atom bombs dropped on modern portfolio theory. Oh, you massive. want to talk about how they dispute modern portfolio theory. Precisely. Precisely. <laughs> because we need to understand why this market... I love how you like, pick up on any source that's like, modern portfolio theory is crap. <laughs> Let me tell you all that. You're like, yes. Oh, I hate it when you call me out like that. But it is true. <laughs> I have to say I have a bias and I love bringing up things that are, are supporting my bias, which is exactly the work that Danny Kahneman did. He said, hey... We are not necessarily so rational. We definitely have biases and work to support our biases. And we do it in the stock market all the time. So Yeah, I mean, I find him really interesting. I've read parts of that book. He's a behavioral economist, which is a fancy way of saying that he thinks about how psychology affects economics and our economic decisions and therefore, of course, how they affect the markets. And um, it's pretty amazing that it's been so long in economics in the field without anyone really connecting psychology until lately. And now behavioral economics is this huge field and people are really obsessed with it. And, um, and I think it's really helpful for this kind of thing that we're doing, like normal, I'm going to call us normals, normals learning how to do stuff in the stock market. People who are not naturally drawn to the stock market and trying to figure it out Classic behavioral economics situation. Exactly. Classic behavioral economic situation. And Kahneman and his old partner, Amos Tversky, are the, the guys that really push that boulder up a hill to against this concept that everybody wanted to believe in, which is that we're all so rational and we all act so much in our own best self-interest. And that's all just the way people work. Turns out not so much. And yeah, as a result a of that, we're a mess. Newsflash to everyone. <laughs> we're all a mess. <laughs> we're a mess. And we, we act all the time in sort of irrational ways that, that they pointed out. we think are self-interested, but actually exactly. aren't. And yeah, we're a mess. That's, and newsflash number two is guess what? There are actually human beings running your funds, managing yeah. your stock portfolio in the stock market, behaving, quote, rationally, and maybe not all the time. So we're going to get back to that next week. So until then, what do you think? We're going to, shall we wrap it up? All right, everybody. Go ahead, okay. Dad. All right. Until then, time to go play. See ya. All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Head over to investedpodcast.com for our show notes and a special offer on how the podcast listeners can attend my three-day transformational investing workshop for free, where we just teach the heck out of you for three straight days. We don't sell anything and we get you a scholarship to come to it for free. So come on over there and take a look at that. And by the way, 
as our lawyers want me to say. Everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion, my opinion's right, and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So this podcast is just for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it. So until next time, time to go play.